Okay, welcome everybody. Rationalism versus mysticism, episode 16, Prophetic Kabbalah, part two. <laughs> you know, I never thought I'd be, first of all, uh, giving a class on this topic, second of all, giving a title with so many complicated words in it, but here we are, um, you know, nevertheless. And uh, I'm excited because I think, again, the information is so intriguing and it's so unlike many of the things that we've ever heard and you hear the laughing from the other room it's not at me don't worry it's just other people um but yeah this this information is so unlike anything else you've probably learned that it really is intriguing for that reason and i hope it inspires you but as always i want to open up and say don't you know uh delve too much into your brain into your uh into your i want to say the word intellect but we're going to be using that word a lot this class so intellect is okay, but it doesn't mean the mind and getting lost in thought per se. Um, so try to allow my words to land on you into your heart, into your soul, and you know, focus on the moment and allow the words to become like a meditation for you as always. And as always, we'll open with some words from the Tao Te Ching. He says, not knowing is true knowledge. Presuming to know is a disease. First, realize that you are sick then you can move toward health. That's crazy. I mean, he calls this idea of thinking that we know something a disease. But you know what? I don't think it's so crazy. I think to a person who is in this state of mind, they can look back and say that my old way of thinking about the world was the whole problem with me in the world. So my self-conceptualizing the world outside of me created this separation between myself and the world and the world became an object of knowledge and i felt a stranger in a world right uh naked and afraid in a world we never made as they say i think alan watts loves to quote that um so he says what we should focus on is not knowing right and there's this not knowing mind as they talk about and to approach the world without our preconceptions our preconceived notions and just approaching it experientially and just trying to feel into how does experience hit us immediately and imminently. Um, and once you kind of label this old way of thinking as a disease that allows you to move towards health and deprogram yourself from the old way of thinking about the world and reprogram yourself to approach experience just by being present with the stimuli that approach you. Okay, next quote, to bear and not to own to act and not lay claim, to do the work and let it go. For just letting it go is what makes it stay. So what does it mean? To bear and not to own. We don't want to own anything. We don't want to lay dominion over it because then you're, again, you're just trying to one-up the universe. You're not seeing yourself as a dancer in this mix. To act and not to lay claim Right. What does that mean? That that you're not trying to, again, own your accomplishments. You're just acting through the world and seeing yourself as, again, surfing through or swimming through reality rather than saying, look, I accomplished this and kind of adding things to your internal identity. No, no, no. Let go of all that. Be so present in this moment that you let go of any identity that needs to own things in the past to do the work and let it go. Right. You can almost imagine like the wake of a ship following it in the past or like they say, in, in the in the sea is your way or that uh, they, it says in Psalms, God, your way is in the sea and even the footprints are washed away. The point being, it's it's supposed to be something that happens and then it goes away and that's it. Right. Or, you know, like the, the famous feeling, you know, after a big party. And uh, you, you were there and everything was loud and there were so many people. Let's say you were the host and then finally everybody left and then you're just there in that quiet room. That's the feeling of moving through life in this way. There could be a lot of big noises and a big bang and a whole creation that happens. And then one, once it's all said and done, there's silence again. And then that's it. And that's the way to move through life. Um, for just letting it go is what makes it stay. That's really interesting because if you try to hold on to it, you lose it, right? So somebody who tries to hold on to their breath, they lose it, right? That you can't, the, the way to have breath is to breathe out and to let it go. Maybe that's 
Uh, maybe it's unique to breath, but I think there's a lesson that obviously it's unique to breath. I agree. But I think still that there's a beautiful lesson in that because it's telling you stop trying to hold on to everything because a lot of things are like that, where if you, if you cling to them, they're actually going to leave you. And if you let them go and you just, it's almost like uh, interpersonal interactions. If you show somebody like a doctor, if I try to kiss up too much and impress them too much, then they're going to be, you know, kind of like turned off. But if I show kind of like a calm, cool, connect, collected nature where it's like, all right, take it or leave it. Then I just move through. They respect it more. And they, they, they kind of don't see you as needy in that way. Wait, what was the last line? That For just letting it go is what makes it stay. All right, Letting it go allows it to be as it was really, I think. And it, it kind of stays with you in its reality um, rather than as some separate you know uh mind thing that you you stored away in your hippocampus somewhere separately great next one he who stands on tiptoe doesn't stand firm he who rushes ahead doesn't go far oh my god no way i was like where'd mickey go that's amazing unbelievable good to see you unbelievable you're in for a treat tonight mick all right so we're up to the next quote of the Dalai Ching. He who stands on tiptoe doesn't stand firm. This is unbelievable. Right? He who rushes ahead doesn't go far. He who tries to shine dims his own light. Right? So it's, if you're forcing it, if you're, if you're approaching life too timidly, on tiptoe, you don't stand firm. And why would somebody walk on tiptoe? They don't feel a part of it. They, don't, they feel a stranger in this world. Feeling a stranger, you're going to start tiptoeing. You're going to start moving slowly through it all, right? You're not standing firm. And if you're rushing ahead because you want to just get it over with, again, you're, you don't feel comfortable in the moment. Somebody who feels comfort, comfortable right now is not tiptoeing, and they're not rushing ahead. But he who tries to shine dims his own light. Also, same thing. If you're trying to shine, you're actually going to dim your light, right? So if you're conscious of the goodness that you're doing, they always come down to this, is that real goodness? It becomes egotistical and it becomes a little nishek. It becomes a little disgusting at that time. The best type of goodness is where you're so oblivious of the good that you're doing that it just happens on its own, right? That's why, I, to me, to be honest, very often I can't stand compliments because it just gets me too self-conscious of, I mean, there's probably a healthy way to absorb compliments. I haven't figured it out yet. I try not taking them personally, that's for sure, because then you got to take the insults personally too. And I get a heck of a lot of insults too, so it's really not worth it. Um, but I think part of this is, is this idea, you know, stop trying to shine. Stop forcing it. Just be present and calm in the moment with what is, and, and it'll shine on its own. He who defines himself can't know who he really is. This is one of my favorite parts of this quote. If you define yourself as person, as man, a woman, uh, you know, animal on this planet, if you're defining yourself, you're already putting yourself in a box as separate from the rest of reality. And you could read about all these psychedelic people and they'll tell you, you're not who you think you are. You're not what you think you are. All the mystics for ages and ages are saying, you're just a soul occupying this body. We're all non-binary. Exactly. I think we all are non-binary. We finally, <laughs> finally got there. Exactly. <laughs> I was waiting to get to that point. All right. So. Don't define yourself because that's going to prevent you from figuring out who you really are. And I think who you really are is this ineffable thing. It's beyond words. And the funniest part about it is that when you, they say when you discover who you really are, it's the funniest thing in the world because you played a big, fat, practical joke on yourself up until that point of realizing it. And like you say, no, it couldn't be. Did I really? I did, I did this the whole, no, couldn't be. Really? That was me the whole time. And then you go back to, and you get lost again. And then you get the hiding and the seeking and the, you know, the, the lost and the found, and it just repeats over and over again. Right. So if you define yourself, you don't know who you really are. He who has power over others can't empower himself. I think that's amazing because if you're trying constantly to be in power over other people, that the dynamic that you're creating makes it that you yourself are not really empowered. You're only empowered by virtue of everyone else being, quote unquote, lower than you. And now you're not really empowering yourself. 
you're just, okay, I'm seen this way, but it's all hinging upon how they see me. But if you let, the, if you let go of that and you say, I'm powerful no matter who or what tells me I am, and that's going to play into this class a lot because there's a lot of solitude involved in the Abu Lafian way of prophecy. Um, he who clings to his work will create nothing that endures. Right? If you insist that your work succeed or you insist that your work uh, last or make an impact, so there's always the guy who's trying too hard. Nobody likes the guy who's pushing or pressing. When a guy in baseball, uh, you know, he's, he's not meeting his potential, and then the announcer always says, you could tell, you know, Sanchez has been slumping for the past month and he's, he's pressing, he's pushing too hard. He's trying to hit a home run on every shot. If you're trying to hit a home run on every shot, you're going to fail. My, my speech last Saturday was about Andre Agassi, right? And his, his amazing career transformation happened from Brad Gilbert telling him, listen, dude, you got to stop trying to hit a winner on every shot. Very funny. <laughs> I made that mistake in Jewel. But it's Brad Gilbert I know now. But if you're trying to hit a winner on every single shot, you're forcing it and you're insisting on a winner. You're gonna, and that that screwed up his whole career in the beginning of his career. And then when he finally stopped trying to so hard to hit a winner, he was able to say, Okay, now just keep the ball in play and it'll all work out. And then he just won the US Open and then held the number one seed for two years. If you want to accord with the Tao, just do your job, then let it go. I love that, right? If you want to be in accord with whatever this mysterious thing is that permeates all of reality and doesn't lord it over them, the Tao, you want to be in accord with that? Be like the Tao. And don't go yelling from the rooftops about how much you are providing for people. You know, that, that famous uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, oh, well, he donates the wing and he has to tell everybody he sees Ted Danson's telling everybody that he's the anonymous one it's like that's the whole joke if the Dow went around and started every little inch of everywhere saying I'm anonymous I'm anonymous are you really anonymous no so that's the issue that a lot of people have with the idea of God because they look at God and they project their own insecurities they say well God is so egotistical I am the Lord your God who has taken you out and, and, and obviously, it's hard to, to project it on because, because it's God. It's not really you. I mean, which contradicts everything that I say often. But that version of God is, is very distasteful to people because it's lording it over them. Literally, the doubt isn't lorded over them. So that's the thing. Some people are, are able to approach that more. And some people are not able to really approach that as much. And, you know, I think it's understandable to me. Um, I love this idea. Just do your job then let go. Stop insisting and continuing to, to control. All of that stuff is just going to get you nowhere and it's going to make you more neurotic and it's going to make you less at ease with what you're doing. Next one. When nothing is done, nothing is left undone, right? So it's this idea of doing without doing. <laughs> What the heck does that mean, doing without doing? How do you do something without doing it? Well, when you realize it's not you that's doing it, it's not your ego that's doing it, it's just kind of you're present there while it's happening. Are you the one surfing? Are you the one, Mickey, right now, are you secreting the cortisol from your adrenal cortex? Are you doing that consciously? I'm <laughs> I mean, maybe sometimes you could do it consciously. Are you secreting the uh, the melatonin from your pineal gland tonight? No, is that you? Are you the one beating your heart? Did you choose the next thought that that's emerging in your mind? People are so offended by this idea of lack of free will, and it, it drives them up the wall. I used to be like, I kind of still am that way because we all want this level of control. And it's the worst thing for the ego to hear is, oh, you probably don't have control, and then it's like, oh my god, everyone goes bananas. But the point is, like Krishna Murthy says. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Real freedom is the freedom not to choose. Baruch Haba. <laughs> right? So real freedom is the freedom not to choose. What does it mean not to choose? It means that you're just present with what's happening. And you don't feel the need to make a decision. Because making a decision means that there was a, po a point of indecision. A person who is vibing with the universe doesn't need to make a decision. It just happens on its own. I think that's beautiful. Um, that's the place we all want to be in, right? We don't want to be neurotic and 
weighing the options. And then in the end, you always just make a last minute decision anyway. I don't think it's possible to really do anything else other than that. If you have a way of not doing that, please let me know. Um, <laughs> all right. Now, this is the last quote that we'll give, and then we'll, we'll move into uh, throne mysticism and, and prophetic Kabbalah. Say it again? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a normal statement. I know. That's, uh, yeah. Do you want to improve the world? I don't think it can be done. The world is sacred. It can't be improved. If you tamper with it, you'll ruin it. If you treat it like an object, you'll lose it. I love that. I mean, do you want to improve the world? Like you're trying to do tikkun olam with the world is, is not good enough for you as it is right now? You think you're going to make the game eventually end where white wins over black or positive or negative yin over yang over yin? Do you, you ever think you're going to be able to, to, to finish the game and that's it and then it's going to be done? That's absurd to think that you can cause all goodness and all positivity fundamental to the fabric of the universe is this balance between yin and yang. It will always be that way. If you insist that it not be that way, all you're doing is fighting against what is and what has to be. So stop trying to improve the world, uh, you know, and stop swimming upstream. Instead, get in line with the Tao and, and you know, build a sail. So he's saying it can't be improved. And if you're trying to improve it, you're going to end up causing more damage than good. Right. We know how many wars were fought over beautiful aspirations. Ah, so that's the thing is, is what you think is so self-righteously as you're improving it is actually probably a combination of damaging and improving. It. At least we could say that. That's a balance. I would say that's also just, that's just it. That's just part of the world also. Yeah, no, it is. I, that, I really do agree with that. It's not a detriment to the world. Yes. It has people trying and people. Agreed, but I think the world would, there, there would be a lot less, you know, it's hard to even say because we're, we're saying that it's never going to be perfect. But at the same time, the trying very often leads to horrible things like, you know, social Darwinism or, uh, you know, spreading uh, certain ideas throughout the world that need to be spread. Lack of trying also leads to... So I, I don't, th so that's the thing. I don't think, so that's, that's what I mean with doing, with, but without doing. Right. That you don't have to do it with this, I am good and I am a force of good in the world and I am self-righteous. That's what I'm trying to, that's what I think he's trying to get at, is that your self-righteousness ruins everything. So stop doing it with the self-righteous. I am improving the world. It spoils it for yourself. I feel like it doesn't. I don't think it. It, it, it could cause. It could. It could cause a lot of suffering too. You didn't even see. You know, kind of uh, branching out a butterfly effect. Causing the suffering. I think it's part of. You're the so you're the vessel. You be the one you're the vessel. The improvement to the world. You are. You're you're both. You're the vessel for all. Yeah, of it. A minute ago, we said you can't do. It. You're right. It's a, you can't really put it into words, but you see where I'm getting at. That there are times when you're. Self-righteousness will not produce the think, effect that you think, wanted it to exclusively have. Paradox that, like, from one perspective, you can't improve it, mm -hmm. and from another perspective, um, trying to improve it harms mm -hmm. it. Exactly. So, I don't think you can say both at the same time. No. I think while you're saying you can't improve it, you have to admit you can't harm it either. Okay. No problem. I'm fine with that. Okay. So we, we, yeah, I mean, there's only a, a, up to a point you could speak up to a point you can't speak anymore about it, you know? Um, but I think, I think ne nevertheless, what he's saying, if you tamper with it, you'll ruin it. That thinking that you're going to change things around to improve them. If you treat it like an object, you lose it. Like it's placing yourself in a relationship. At least we could say this, that you don't want to be in with reality where your relationship with reality now is me separate from it in this way that's not so healthy and instead see the world as organism and you're part of that organism of it there is a time for being ahead a time for being behind a time for being in motion a time for being at rest a time for being vigorous a time for being exhausted a time for being safe a time for being in danger what does that sound like chapter three of Kohelet. very good the time for being born a time for dying a time for uh, planting a time for uprooting that was just planted very very good and that was our last class series i thought that was really interesting the master sees things as they are right so who's a master a master is a person who could see things as they are 
What does that mean? I think what he means is here without trying to control them. Part of it is you're not projecting as much of your ego onto the, onto the world and onto reality. And I think psychedelics do that, you know, in a lot of ways they show you where you are projecting your ego onto the world, right? They show you, look, I'm, you know, creating these defense mechanisms. That's what a defense mechanism is. And then you're, you're creating these whole skewed views of what is happening in reality. So the master sees things as they are without trying to control them. He lets them go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. Oh, I love that. Resides at the center of the circle. I always say sometimes in the mystical state, one might feel like the fulcrum of existence. Like you're so still and so relaxed and so in balance with the world that you're just like watching as everything is changing all around you. And you're just sitting. You're saying, wow, there's this whole grand symphony and this whole play that's happening and all the players and all the actors and all the things that are happening and i'm just sitting there watching it and i'm the center of the circle that doesn't mean i'm the center of reality it doesn't mean i'm the focal point of i mean everything is the everything that's conscious is is the center point of its reality the amoeba in its place and the the, the blade of grass in its place and the and the bug and the you know uh maybe even the planets if you think that they're conscious and I, i'm not saying they are they are and i have no I, I don't think they are but if there is some idea of panpsychism where everything has some degree of consciousness who knows it's, it's pretty amazing maybe next lifetime i'll be born as like mercury or something i'll let you know <laughs> but it's really it's an incredible way of 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 kind of relating to reality so now we'll, we'll pick up where we left off last class with throne mysticism and we'll move into the very unique mysticism of Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia. And I think you guys are in for a treat. Throne mysticism. All right. So last time we were talking about how you're progressing in your meditation from chamber to chamber. And the number of angels is getting larger and larger. And the names are becoming even longer and more difficult. And you're supposed to be telling them, okay, this is your name. This is your name. <laughs> and they're all getting more and more difficult. He who looks at them is overwhelmed by their power. This is in the mystical vision. And their height, which towers over mountains, in their hands are lightning, like Zeus. Their eyes burn with fire. Flames issue from their nostrils and rays from their mouths. Their horses are black horses of death. Horses of the netherworld, horses of fire, brimstone of blood with knees of iron. Right? What could possibly be the meaning of this stuff? I think it's just the way that this mystic was absorbing this very overwhelming divine influx of terror. These were the images that he got. If the mystic made an error with the name of one of the, or the pronunciation of one of these angels didn't recite it the right number of times, he would be ejected from that realm and maybe he would crash land, right? And this might explain uh, the desire of Yaakov Avinu to know the name of the angel, right? He says, Hi, uh, tell me your name, Mashemecha. Right. And, and, uh, and they say the mystics will tell you because the name of the angel is part of this mystical experience where if you know their name, it's like a key to unlock to the next level. Right. Which is very, very interesting. Where else do we know that from that knowing the name of an angel from Shimshon from Samson All right, that, that idea that they ask him, it's almost identical words. Like before the morning comes, I want to know your name. Very interesting. Um, and I, I wrote this down on my notes, maybe to get, to the place beyond order, which is this, this whole mystical, you know, uh, hullabaloo. We need to embrace the concept of order up to a point. Right? So there's so much, so much order here. There's so many numbers. There's so much recitation and mantras and all this stuff. But maybe to get to that place beyond my logic of what order means, right? So can you talk about the universe as being a blind game? And can you talk about it as being an orderly game, you could, you could talk about it from both perspectives, I think, from that mystical point of view, that dialectical, you know, balancing of the two opposites of the paradoxes of reality, because we love paradoxes as mystics. But I think very often, some people like to embrace the chaos, and some people like to embrace the order. I'm one of those order kind of guys. If I'm in the mystical, say again, prickly. I'm very prickly, exactly. We're talking about Alan Watts talks about prickly people and wiggly people, or gooey, prickles and goo. I'm definitely not so gooey. You know, some people, I mean, I became more gooey over the years. Definitely. I was a lot pricklier, but there's different kinds of people. So some people need to do this whole thing where they feel like they're earning it and they feel like there's an order and then they'll get there. Who knows? 
And then other people are just kind of like embracing the chaos and they want to just, you know, go swim in a puddle and roll around in the mud. And then they somehow induce, and I, you know, that's just not my cup of tea, but listen to each his own. Um, <laughs> there's different kinds of people out there. Um, and now here, we, huh? Gooey, I mean, like, so is an electron a particle or a wave? The prickly people will say it's a particle. The, the, the gooey people will say it's a wave, you know? And then like, there's people who are able to vibe and dance with you. And then there's people who are very brainy and they need to think about the world and kind of break it up. And, and there's, you know, both are valuable and both are valid ways of looking at the world. Yeah, right brain, left brain. That whole thing. Exactly. Very good. Very good. Exactly. That's exactly it. Exactly it. There's different kinds of people. And, uh, and there's some people in that group that, that enjoy more of the chaos. Um, so here's a good quote. We know that when the throne mystic would undergo their experience, scribes would sit next to them. And as the mystic described what he was experiencing, the scribes would record it. So you can imagine the guy's in, he's on the craziest mushroom trip of his life. The Lahav deal, I guess you could say, if you really need to say Lahav deal. Um, and he was experiencing all this stuff and the scribes are recording. We assume that much of the literature of the Merkava, which is that chariot mysticism that, that Ezekiel saw, was derived from these reports. Right. So so we think that a lot of these throne mystics, these people who are having these visions on high, had somebody next to them writing down everything they were saying. You could only imagine the things that must have been coming out of their mouths. It must have been epic. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting. So very funny is that along the way on this mystical journey, there would be traps to trap the mystic, to trick him. Right. And for example, you know, from that, the, from the, the Talmud, from the Gemara, we saw that Rabbi Akiva told the other people, when you get up there and you see the, the, the blue marble, don't say mayim mayim. Don't say water, water, when you see that marble. Because you're going to mistake it for being water, and then you're just going to get ejected, and they're going to say, oh, you assumed that you knew what was going on. But really, you didn't. So there's a humility in that. And I think the mystic needs to be able to not fall into tricks. So I think a person undergoing a psychedelic trip, he needs to be aware of his own biases and his own, uh, you know, defense mechanisms. And if he's projecting to get over that, and if he's, you know, uh, reaction formationing to get over that, and whatever it is, to just be aware of why he's doing or saying what he's doing or saying, right? And I think that allows him to, to sidestep a lot of these traps and these tricks. Um, and what, how would the throne mystic prepare? Long periods of fasting dipping in the mikveh, things like that. They learned and practiced certain postures, kind of like a yoga thing. They would sit very often. This is one of the most popular. We know from Melachim Aleph, from Kings 1, chapter 18, Baruch Abba, that Eliyahu Anavi, Elijah, sat with his head between his knees like this. And that's, that's after, he, uh, after he wanted to get rid of the decree of, of no rain. He wanted to bring back the rain, and it says he put his head between his knees. And now for eons and eons, people are doing this. We have basically no other example of a posture that somebody took when, when trying to achieve a state like this. So they said, wow, we know of one. Let's do it. So they just put the head between their knees, and now that's a big thing. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I don't really know any throne mystics, but I'm sure in those days, I think they did. I don't know. I don't know about today. We could try it if you want. Yeah. Yes, they're in Very good. Um, they, they would recite and practice reciting certain hymns and prayers that were aimed at inducing an auto-suggestive hypnotic trance. I love that, those words. Auto-suggestive hypnotic trance. And Kelohenu that we have in Ketoret is an example of that. And Kelohenu, and Kelohenu, and Kelohenu, and Kelohenu. You repeat it over and over. I'll never forget when I was in like fourth grade, the rabbi came in and we were practicing reading. And, and my friend Eddie who was reading it, started laughing because he's like, it's repeating. And the rabbi was like, do you know how holy this is? This is one of the holiest things. And he's like, but why does it keep saying the same words over and over again? And now I have the answer. It's because it was a mantra that these throne mystics would use. And it was created by them as an auto-suggestive hypnotic trance. So if you're ever in a place that you want to induce a mystical experience, you could exactly just keep on saying it and maybe it'll work. Um, and it's a beautiful, I think it really is beautiful. It really could get you in the zone. Um, it was recited in a very specific cadence and a rhythm, like a mantra, in order to boost the, the hypnotic trance. So 
you could figure out different rhythms and maybe uh, chanting and ohms and stuff like that within. Um, and But you, if you compare this stuff, all these mantras to Buddhist mantras, these mantras are a lot more complex, right? They're not nearly as complex as Abulafian mantras, which we'll get to, but these are more complex as well than, than the other religions. And even though there was so much effort, a lot of these throne mystics were only able to make it to about the fifth or sixth chamber. And they only had certain mysteries revealed to them. They never quite made it to the seventh and beyond. Some of them. So you talk about some people take a psychedelic. Did you have ego death? I didn't have ego death, but I saw unbelievable things. So people who are smoking DMT and only up to a point, they, they, they see the, the everything's vibrating around them, but they didn't have the, they didn't necessarily see uh, a being or a, what do they call them? Machine elves or entities. Exactly. So I think that's, that's a, a pretty good kind of mashal for that. Um, <laughs> just theoretically speaking of course <laughs> and uh they have certain mysteries revealed to them only a select few of these people like Rabbi akiva have ever entered the throne room right so only you could count on your fingers probably the, the people who actually have successfully claimed to have entered the throne room of god you talk about of course Yehezkel, ezekiel and yeshaya isaiah um so each of the chambers has different angels guarding them and different kind of like levels to level up and they test you and they try to see, are you worthy of moving on? This is just from this book that I'm reading. I, I, I have writings. I think they have writings. They have writings from a lot of throne mystics. That's what he's, where he gets it from. I hope, I hope he's not just lying about it. He's a, he's a college professor. So I assume he's worth his salt, Byron Sherwin. Um, and it's, to me, it's, he's Jewish also. He's, he knows his stuff. Um, I hope. And it's very, it's very interesting. I think, it, I think uh, they, they didn't really get into detail in this book. I'm sure you could, if you go into like the, the actual writings, I'm sure they'll tell you what they do. They, they said, and then in the first chamber, you encounter Akakriel and the, the thing, and each one, all the names. And you have to be able to say that this, this guy's name backwards and forwards seven times. And then this one, and if you don't do it the exact number, they, they throw you out. You, know? so yeah. you got to be really prepared for, for this, this experience. So amazing it's really amazing that's what I, that's what i mean when i say some people really need that order to get to the place beyond order these guys were into the prickles you know it's that beautiful whatever gets you there you know um and then one who enters that final throne room is able to somehow see god whatever that means they hear his decrees they have a sensory experience of god what does that mean well human beings if you consider yourself as a part of god continuous with god then something about your experience starts feeling like, okay, now this is God's experience. And this is an experience of God, by God, with God, who, uh, you know, and with the people, for the people, by the people, of the people. That's kind of how it feels. Um, maybe he's learning some mysteries of the Torah that he never understood before. You know, similar to psychedelics, when people say they finally understand uh, some mystical truths that always sounded so theoretical, like life is suffering, where Usually you just say that, and then it sounds pretty grim. But then you're on the psychedelic, and you say, holy cow, I can't believe it. Because now it seems to me that it's the same thing as yin and yang. That without suffering, there is no life. Without death, there is no life. Without the upstroke, there is no downstroke. Without the big bang, there can be no big crunch and vice versa. There needs to be the balancing act always. So I think life is, is suffering takes on a little bit of that meaning. Life entails suffering. Part of the formula for creating life is also death and suffering. But there's also life, and then both are part of it. So you could start understanding some of these truths um, from an experience. You feel into it, and you kind of see it in, in, in a, that you're part of that. Um, all right, you learn and participate in angelic prayers. I love this. And that's how Moses, Moses Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, discovered Baruch Shem Kevod Malchotoli Olam Va'ed, which we're only allowed to say out loud on Yom Kippur, which is that, you know, blessed be God's, the name of God or the, um, the reputation of God's kingdom forever and ever and ever, right? And that's something that when he, when Moses had this unbelievable mystical experience, according to the Talmud, he was able to experience this. And then he came back down. He's like, All right, guys, I have a secret. And, you know, we're not allowed to say this out loud most of the time because we stole it, sort of, like kind of like Prometheus stealing fire, but you're allowed to say it when you're like an angel, which is Ankipur. Um, 
And once you have all this stuff, you're demonstrating that you're a mystical adept now. You've mastered the work of the chariot and, and your understanding experientially of what that means. And you show that you attain magical powers, whatever that means, so that, quote, it is good for him in this world and peaceful for him in the world to come. The evil inclination holds no sway over him and he is safe from spirits, demons, damages, damagers, and robbers, from evil animals, snakes, scorpions, and imps. I will not pretend or pretend to say that I know what all that means, but I think it's kind of like taking this perspective of the observer or the, the, the calm, cool, and collected, you know, Buddha nature, as they call it, that's not getting kind of lost in the goods and the bads of reality and, and the, the dramas of what's happening around him. And unlike the, the people we spoke about in previous classes who are mystical intimacy people, seeking real complete intimacy with God, these throne mystics, what they really wanted was an experience of God that was conceived to be too awesome and too majestic. Kadosh, 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 holy, 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 for any intimate embrace. All right, so of course, we always have this tension between God's transcendence and God's imminence. And like I compared last class, I said, do you always like chocolate ice cream? Well, sometimes. And then other times I like to have Rocky Road. And then other times I like to have marshmallow. And then I don't know, I pick marshmallow, vanilla, you know, it's a more normal one. But so if you're a human being, do you always want to go around saying, you know, I'm really part of God and then God's hugging me all the time and I'm integrated? Well, maybe. But other times you want that unbelievable experience of awe and majesty with God being so far, like I want to watch a Carl Sagan video and feel tiny. Sometimes I don't always want, and by the way, if that weren't true, then God's will, if that were, you could, you could say it that way, wouldn't be that he would be lost as you right now. The reason God enjoys being lost as you right now is because it's part of existence and it's part of his will. And it's part of the fun of, of everything. So this is one flavor of existence that God wants to have sometimes. And then other times he wants to return to himself. But the truth of the matter is, I think once you get right down to it, and once you have this mystical experience and you break through, it's going to sound maybe a little crazy, but I think imminence and transcendence converge on each other at these lofty heights. So really in reality, you start to realize at that point, like, oh, it's because God is so transcendent that he's also so imminent. It's because God is so holy, 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 and, you know, majestic that he's also so ultimately humble and there with the poor person and close to all of us and within us and within your bones and your cells and every little thing. And he's also larger and more unfathomable than you can ever imagine. And it's because he's one he's that, that he's also the other. And you can't have one without the other. Two sides of the same coin, like everything else. Um, I know I might sound like I'm getting all crazy here, but this is, I think this is really, it's, it's hitting on something very deep. Um, and then unlike what we call theosophical theurgic Kabbalah, which is this idea of knowing something about the mind of God or entering the realm of God and understanding ideas of God or the ability to influence that realm, which, which is theurgy, that unlike all that stuff, the throne mystics didn't want to influence the divine realm. They wanted to be influenced by the divine realm. They weren't interested in all these sifirot stuff and, you know, using these different names of God per se to change things about. They just wanted to get there and then be transformed themselves by it. Um, and then the, what's the step beyond even this? All this stuff we've been talking about? The prophetic Kabbalah would be Abraham Abulafia, which was aimed at the attainment of an actual prophetic experience. And now, finally, without further ado, we'll, we'll talk about Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia. Who is this man, first and foremost? Right? And uh, by the way, if there's any questions or comments uh, before that, we could take them. Otherwise, we'll go right in. Great. So, who was this man? He, was, he lived in late 13th century Spain. Um, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, in the 16th century, uh, filtered down some of Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia's teachings to the Eastern European Hasidism of the 18th and 19th century. So some Hasidut actually comes from the writings of Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia. It's a very authentically Jewish form of meditation. Um, and unlike many other Jewish mystics, Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia was not steeped in Talmudic study. And he was not steeped in Halachic study. He did not spend most of his time doing that. 
and his basis of authority was not Jewish communal life and going to shul and bet midrash. That wasn't his style. His style instead was that, no, the mystical experience was an individual endeavor. As one of these famous philosophers says, it's the journey of the alone to the alone, small a to big A, right? It was an individual endeavor and it's pursued preferably in isolation, right? And isolation is actually completely necessary for the prophetic experience. And if you don't have this isolation, you're probably not going to be able to get there. You know, nobody really builds themselves up to these very high levels. Uh, just, you know, starting off among the oys base. You kind of have to separate a little bit and then, you know, you do your own thing. And then if you get to that level where you're able to go back into and integrate yourself into reality and maintain that perspective among the people, beautiful, do it. But you need to take some time alone, I think, for this stuff. I think that comes as a very welcome thing to be heard because so often in Judaism, we hear, oh, yes, simha, real happiness only comes among the group. Okay, fine. Can I have some alone time? You know, is that okay? You know, and then it's so discouraged so often that it's like, God damn, I just want to be alone for five minutes. Let me just meditate. But they say, are you doing chesed? Are you learning? And it's like, you know, they say it's isolationism and it's escapism. The response to that is if you really knew what the mystical experience was, then you would realize that the real escapism is what you're doing. And that the biggest non-escapism is being one with that mystical experience, being one with God. And that escapism is the willingness, fine, I'll escape back into reality, into this reality. And escape that realist of realities to come back and try to guide other people back to that. But the realist reality is that one. So you're the escapist, not me. The mystic is the least escapist. But then happens, you know, <laughs> you know like, this and that. Um, all right, so it's it's necessary for that prophetic experience to be isolated sometimes. Um, and Abu Lafin Kabbalah was very much developed and was initially the work of itinerant mystics, people who were moving around, they didn't really have deep roots in any particular community, um, which was similar to Luriana Kabbalah of the Arizal, and unlike Hasidut, Hasidism, which was very much ingrained in the community. Um, and amazingly. Believe it or not, and this is something I'm very proud to say, Rabbi Abraham Abulafia was profoundly influenced by none other than Moses Maimonides, by Haram Bam, who lived two generations prior to him. And we had this whole class is called rationalism versus mysticism. We talk so much about the rationality versus the mystical element of things. But here we see a beauty in the person of Rabbi Abraham Abulafia, a beautiful convergence of rationalism and mysticism and a beautiful convergence of the personality of Hanambam and this mystical person into one entity. And this is allowing you know, us to kind of see this beautiful marriage of, of ideas that we haven't really seen up until this point of philosophies. So let's talk a little bit about prophecy according to Hanambam before we talk about prophecy according to the Abraham Abu Lafia, so that we can understand what exactly he believes about prophecy from the foundations that Hanambam wrote about in the Guide for the Perplexed in his philosophical work. Hanambam says, prophecy is the, is the pinnacle, it's the apex, it's the unbelievable goal of human development, the fulfillment of all of human existence. And by the way, that's probably how it feels when one enters the mystical state. Like this was the purpose of all of it, the being found. I was lost and now the being found you hear the Christians talking about being born again. There must be some unbelievable feeling to that. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. I can only say these things in this shul. You know, and in so many other shuls, I would never be able to say, I mean, anything, any of these things. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. So I'm quoting 95.5. <laughs> K-Love. It's good stuff. <laughs> so there's a family tradition reported by Hanambam by Maimonides. That although prophecy was suspended in ancient times, the possibility for prophecy was soon to be restored, right? In the year 1210, that was the tradition, and Hanambam Brahmanis died in 1204. So he believed that, you know, six years after he died, there would, that there was this prelude to Messianic redemption, that prophecy would be restored back then. Mm -hmm. I don't know where, I think maybe one of his letters, I, I, Rabbi Hittery knows, I think, I think maybe even in the guide. Um, and the, the Mashiach, the Messiah, was going to be a prophet, second only in ability to Moses, to Moshe. 
And un unlike other biblical prophets who didn't have to prepare themselves, God would just call them out of the blue, the Mashiach would have to prepare himself for attaining human perfection. Hanabam talks about four progressive steps in attaining human perfection. Perfection of possessions, body, soul, and intellect. Why possessions? Well, if you're scrambling for food and a shelter and clothing, you don't really have time to become a perfect person intellectually or really, and we're going to see what intellect actually means. It doesn't mean the mind. Um, the body, he was a physician. He was a doctor on Ambam, and he knew all about the importance of maintaining physical health, you know, in order to have any kind of normal state of mind that's capable of, of perceiving these things. The soul is about morality. And the intellect is not the mind, but the faculty and the capacity of man to be self-conscious and to be conscious in the first place of, of his experiences. We'll see more about that. Similar a lot to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, that you have these, these more basic needs that could eventually lead up to that self-actualization at the pinnacle. Um, and of course, part of that soul and moral perfection is the mitzvot, is keeping the commandments of the Torah. Um, but what is this intellectual faculty of the soul? Part of it is affirming correct ideas and rejecting incorrect ones. So if you, if you don't know uh, scientific facts and you just have the wrong science, then you're not going to be able to really understand the reality in its fullest sense. So for Hanambam, you needed Bible study, Talmud, Halakha, Jewish law, logic, mathematics, natural science, metaphysics, or philosophy. You needed all these things. It's crazy, rigorous uh, curriculum that was restricted to a specific elite. And they were the only ones who would be able to achieve this road of intellectual perfection and prophecy. Um, and eventually, if the person stayed true to this road, the human intellect could touch the divine intellect, known as the active intellect, and the duration and intensity, the intensity of the human intellect touching of the divine intellect determine the level of prophecy of that person. Right, so duration and intensity. And of course, you need to fulfill the mitzvot. And, and part of this is cleaving to God in devekut. And we'll see more about that soon. Um, a lot of that is really just mindfulness of God's love and presence all the time. Um, the prophet who had developed their intellect was the exception to Harambam and Maimonides' rule that God could have no relationship whatsoever with human beings because human beings are too imperfect. And this would compromise God's perfection. Right? So the person who achieves their own state of perfection is capable of touching the divine intellect because they no longer would compromise God's perfection if they say that if they are, or if we say that they are capable of touching God in that way. Um, and this person who is at this level is enjoying a level of enhanced divine providence. And I'm sure you have a perspective where you're more tuned into that, which is always happening all the time. Um, and here's a quote. Employment of intellectual thought in constantly loving God is mostly achieved in solitude and isolation. Hence, every excellent person, says Hanambam, stays frequently in solitude and does not meet anyone unless it is necessary. This is Maimonides' God for the perplexed. That If you want to really have this level of intellectual love of God, which is an experiential, emotional experience all the time, you need to have time in solitude. right? That's, and that's where Abu Lafia gets it from, I think in a lot of ways. Um, and even when you're preoccupied with daily affairs, so Hanabam was a doctor and he talks about all his daily affairs, the intellect can still remain focused on God all the while. And it's very high, hard, difficult level to be at, of course. Like, But I think if you get to a place where really, you know, if you see yourself, they talk about on, on, on psychedelics too, where you start seeing everything as an act of God. Every single, every single person that walks in the room, every single person that's sitting around you and the voices that you hear and even the voices in your head, it all seems like it's part of God. And if, if that's the case, if everything feels like it's a part of God, then why can't it be that for Hanambam, the, the patient that comes to see him is another face of the divine and he could still be preoccupied with his love of God through treating God's creations and God's creatures, right? Um, so that's how you can remain focused on God by being engaged in the world because you, that's God too. God is the Avodat HaKodesh of treating 
and healing and dealing with human beings. Uh, Baruch Spinoza called this amor de intelectuales, right? And it's uh, you can if you know Spanish or English even amor love de Dios God intelectuales intellectual. It's the intellectual love of God, right? Which doesn't mean the brainy mind thing. It means this faculty of the human to mindfully experience God in what He's doing. Um, and there may, there, there may be an, uh, a human individual who, says Anambam, through his apprehension of the true realities, achieves a state where talks with people, where he talks with people and is occupied with his bodily necessities while his intellect is wholly turned toward God. So you could tell almost Anambam is doing this himself. So that in his heart, he is always in God's presence, while outwardly he is with people in the sort of way described by the poetical parables that have been invented for, the, for those notions. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved that knocks, called Dodido Vek, and that's a quote from uh, the Song of Songs from Shira Shirim. But it's, it's incredible because Hanambam is writing almost like a mystic over here. It's wild. And that's why Rabbi Abraham Abulafia is, is really resonating with this stuff. But Hanambam really... It seems that he could have gotten to this level where he was going about his daily affairs, but he was really pre preoccupied with God. So, I know, Rabbi Hillary, what do you think? Do you think Hanambam believed about himself that he achieved some levels of nivuah or mystical intimacy with God? Yeah. From from the from the God, he he hints at it at least. Yeah. Incredible. There you have it, folks. <laughs> so it's I mean from these writings. Yeah, really, yeah. not about himself, but Hanambam. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. I would love to read but some more. There are yeah. level, levels of prophecy. Uh huh. Besides Moshe Rabbeinu. Wow. Okay. Moshe is like the, the highest that nobody yeah. gets. Yeah. 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 So then, you know, it could be the second level. Right? Yes. Very interesting. Okay. That's pretty amazing, though. <laughs> Even if it's just the Ruach HaKodesh, you know, but it, from the, from what he's writing here, it really seems that he, he's. What type of prophecy is there? So that's the thing is, is I think just the ability to be preoccupied with God at all times and then doing what you're doing without being lost in it and still having your mind always on God. That, that's probably a, a low level of prophecy. One of the Muslim in the introduction talks about the experience of prophecy is sometimes like a lightning. Mm, yes. Right? You just see something and then it's gone. And then uh, after it's gone, you can't, it's hard to even remember what you saw. You just know that it was something amazing. Right, because yeah, and so for some people, maybe it's only once in their lives they have this lightning. Exactly. Other people, they see it many times. Forget other people, it flashes so often, it's like it's always on, <laughs> like a fluorescent bulb, right? Wow, so flashing. yeah, could be that's like great. Almost in perpetual, could right, that would be like you know, level much of that. Wow, and then and then throughout the guide, he's, he uses that kind of metaphor mm. as he says, I'm going to reveal to you a little thing here, a little spark here, right? Ah. Because he puts, he writes about the same subject in many different places, mm -hmm. and then you make a connection. It's like, wait, what was? I'm not sure. What, I just thought of something. What was that connection? Wow! And then you kind of see it inside, and then you can't. Then it's hard to find again. Amazing, so cool, and and this is why to be Abraham Abu Lafia loved him. You know that 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 it, I'm sure he resonated with these ideas of like the sparks and and the seeing things clearly and, and the way that Bam does yeah. it in, in his own writing mm -hmm. in order to understand what's coming you really have to be totally immersed yes thinking about it all the time in yeah. order to put the puzzle together it's wild mm -hmm. yeah and you have you have to be able to do the cross-sectional analysis at any time yeah amazing it's really i, I don't know how he uh how he wrote such an unbelievable book he, he tells you these are seven kinds of contradictions that i'm going to give and uh, sorry, that there's seven types of contradictions that exist. I'm going to use the fifth and the seventh, just like the Torah uses, to, to try to, to sneak points across to you if you're capable of, of noticing them. Mm -hmm. That's the level that he was at. Harambam, and the Moreh Nebuchim, the guy for the perplexed. So it's one of those things you got to spend your whole life <laughs> studying it to really trick yourself into thinking you maybe understand. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those, you know? But I love that. I love that he 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 talks about it and with that same phraseology that I know throughout the book. That's amazing. I think this past parashat haftarah was his favorite haftarah. Really? We rarely read the haftarah because it's usually uh, uh, usually comes out on Shabbat uh, Hagadol another week. And from Yirmiyah seven, he says, 
Ah, yes. Right? Uh, of course, it's not boast. Look how smart I am. Uh -huh. Look how look how strong I am. Look how rich I am. I rather bezot to mitalel. Skill that you don't have. You have to know me. It's knowledge. Uh -huh. a philosopher, right? Understanding God. And what about it? What what can you know about God? So the kam mishpat. Uh, yes. And what does it mean to know God and do the midot? To know them and then practice them yourself, mm. right? Because like God does it in the land, so you do it in the land. So wow, this is uh, it's very practical. Yeah, That's really what it means. And then this daat is hopefully what you're going to be doing as you're doing those things. Right. You feel like a vessel for God. I'm sure. Right. So that uh, yeah, exactly. And so there's a difference between. Doing a nice thing out of habit mm -hmm. or kind of rote, like, yeah, oh, I got up for the old lady on the yeah. subway because, like, you know, that's what I was brought up to do. But uh, maybe you, then you won't be really proactive in doing mm. something really great, mm. like, uh, you know, becoming a doctor. Right? <laughs> I, think I was uh, forced into it by my parents, so don't give me too much credit here. <laughs> or maybe, maybe becoming a, yeah. an, an army general and, yeah. and knowing the right balance of how to fight to mm. uh, achieve your goal without uh, causing so much damage. You can't exactly. Like so maybe it could it being being a chesed emet in the land, maybe uh, designing a car that mm. is a little stronger and will save three lives. Wow. Right. So there's so many other ways that maybe uh, you're not thinking of just because oh, just be a nice person. Wow. Right. And you have to combine that with. Uh, passion for mm -hmm. uh, being like the your creator. Unbelievable. You know how he creates the world with such goodness and passion. And wow. Imitate that. That is so beautiful. Yeah. Elon Musk. Yeah. Uh, so that that's the that's yeah. the conclusion of the guide. Wow, the really? That's how it ends? Oh my God, amazing. But it tells you how to get there. It says start off saying Shema. Wow. The whole paragraph and concentrate. Wow. See if you could do that. Can you not just on the first person? Can you concentrate on the whole paragraph? Try that for a few years. He writes. Wow. Right? And then move on to Amida, Torah. Right? <laughs> try to concentrate. Just try to concentrate. It's meditation. Wow. Until wow. you can be concentrating on the love of God all day long. And even while you maybe you're doing business matters, because you have to, right? But that's just a side point. And you think about it while you're in the shower, <laughs> while you're talking to your wife. Yes. Um, think crazy. about that business matters, but otherwise your mind is always there. You don't need these crazy mantras or anything. All you need for Harambam is the, the words of the Torah yeah, and the Tefilot. Yeah. Unbelievable. Beautiful. And that's that's normal mysticism, as Byron Sherman calls it. He says that there's like, you know, the, this is kind of paranormal mysticism that with, with some of the throne mysticism. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about that, it's like within Judaism yeah. is yeah. the mysticism itself. Right. right. I think Babam has had a, a Tremendous mystical side. He's not practical. Wow. Exactly. You said that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not a dry rationalist at all. He's full of passion. 100%. Beautiful. Wow. I'm so glad you walked in. <laughs> like I said, the face of God walks in sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, right. So, so the, the Hanamam is describing a love here. It's a passionate love. And what does that mean? What, is, what does a passionate love mean? A passionate love is an excess of love. It's th this idea that no thought remains that's directed towards a thing other than the beloved itself, right? The only thoughts that you have now are thoughts directed at God and your what beloved. Does what does that change? Like, <clears throat> yeah, the, the, it's not learning Gemara. It's not no. learning. I no. Know, I mean, whatever. Maybe you need to. But, so let's say you have this presence of Hashem. What else? Like, then what? Then, when in your interactions with people, you're going to be your best self. And in your interactions with yourself, you're going to be your best self. And in the world and everything, the dance that you're doing is the best dance possible. Because you're not reactive and you're not lost and you're not in your ego and you're not angry and you're not sad and you're none of that. You're so present with God that everything else falls away. And that's all that matters now. Is this moment present with God? Regardless of outcomes. And that, that can lead to Nikwa. That's I think that's Just really the bad. Presence of mind always. 100%, man. That's the beauty. Yeah, that's what we're all working on, you know? Yeah. Breathe in, breathe out. The love of God. Exactly. Um, 
so we'll, we'll end in a couple minutes. So just a few more points here. That, going to Hanabam, like we said, is this experiential, emotional knowledge of God. And God doesn't give prophecy, according to the Rambam, the Maimonides, to an intellectually or morally deficient person. It can't be. Just like he doesn't turn an ass or a frog into a prophet, he doesn't cause somebody who is incapable to be a prophet. Um, prophecy can be self-contained in the sense that it could just simply render a person perfect, or it could compel a person to teach the people and let his perfection outflow and overflow toward them. So sometimes it's a personal experience that ends there. And sometimes it's something that compels you to share this with other people. And finally, we'll end with this point. The Abu Lafian Maimonidean connection, I think, like we said earlier, shows that mysticism and rational philosophy are not or need not be as separate as we may have thought in the past. And you can marry the two in this type of personality, like Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia. So we'll continue next week talking about him. I'm sorry we didn't get into the crux of the stuff that he says. There's a lot more to say. Um, yeah, so stay tuned. I hope to have you all, all you guys next week. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you very Thanks much. Again. Thank you, Dr. Care. Have a good one, that Alan. That was great. Nice cameo by Rabbi Hittery also. Yes, that was awesome. Yeah, that, that, was, was that was fantastic. Hazak yeah. Baruch. All right, take care. Take care. So, so um, Michael, what you're saying is that um, if we yeah.